This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. The following program has some naughty language. So if you are listening to this near little ears, make sure they have little earbuds, but you may also want to distract them. I suggest shadow puppets. Monday, July 18th, 2022, from Peachfish Productions, it's the gist, I'm Mike Pesca. Fist bumps and monkeypox. Two big items in the news, one international, one domestic. I'm fairly sure that at least one is meaningless, and I'm inclined to say it's the fist bumping. Fist bumping of world leaders getting so much attention, probably not as important as the new viral craze that's been sweeping the nation. But how alarmed should we be over monkeypox? Vaccine stockpiles are low, reaction was less than swift, but to what effect? This is where I turn to media to mediate the gap between me, the citizen, and them, the experts, the New York Times. Headline, vaccine supply for monkeypox is falling short. The machine is just so ossified, said Greg Gonzalez, an activist and epidemiologist at the Yale School of Public Health. The house is on fire, and it's like everything is moving at sort of normal speed. Well, that sounds alarming, and maybe it is, except I know a little too much about activist and epidemiologist Greg Gonzalez. Gonzalez is a highly credentialed scientist and a winner of a MacArthur Genius Grant. He's also a bit of a bum thrower, as I see it. I'm sure he would say these bombs were necessary and are necessary, especially going back to when he lived through the AIDS epidemic. He'd say it's they're necessary now. But three days ago, White House coronavirus response coordinators, also looking at the monkeypox issue, Ashish Jay, issued this fairly anodyne quote about the administration's posture. Quote, we have tests, we have vaccines, we have therapies. We're building up our capacity on all of them, and they're going to become more and more readily available to the American people. This doesn't tell me, don't worry. This doesn't say we are all over it. It says the virus is spreading, and we're trying to combat it, and we'll have more tests and therapy. Of course you will. What, are you going to have less? Gonzalez tweeted of the claim of more tests and therapies, quote, absolute bullshit, an insult, a lie. A lie? That we'll have more vaccines is a lie? Yes, they're slow getting out of Denmark. There are no more coming? He didn't back up that tweet with spelling out why it's a lie. He just said, you know, he didn't like the cheerleading tone. Fine, that doesn't make it a lie. Gonzalez is among the most outspoken critics of the current approach to COVID. He thinks it's dangerously blasé. We should be, he advises, still be masking and the government should not have dropped the mandates. Others in the field disagree, among them Lena Wen, the Washington Post and CNN infectious disease expert. Here she is talking to Stat News' The Read Out Loud podcast. How much do I want to keep on avoiding COVID? And I'm not saying that, I'm not trying to be cavalier and say that COVID isn't real or that long COVID isn't real or that there aren't consequences to getting COVID. What I'm saying is if it looks like all of us are going to contract COVID in the near future, if we have not already, what are you willing to give up in order to keep on avoiding it? Are you willing to take on this risk knowing that if you attend any indoor gatherings without masks, there will be a risk of contracting COVID? 
And here is how Gonzalez characterized that sentiment. Um, and Dr. Wen and sort of what I call COVID nihilists are saying, you know, don't worry about it. It doesn't matter if you get COVID. Everybody's going to get it in anyway. And that's what she said in her broadcast with you last week. He added when speaking in that same interview on WNYC radio a few months ago. Dr. Wen is basically tilting at straw men and suggesting that anybody who suggests we should really um, keep investing in pandemic mitigation is, is somehow living in a fantasy land. That's an uncharitable and I'm going to say inaccurate way to describe Wen's point of view as I hear it. Just like saying Ja is a liar is an extreme description. Gonzalez comes by his conclusions honestly. I don't think he's lying when he says that this is how he hears Wen and Ja. Uh, he's, they're, of course, grounded in science. I don't doubt that. But maybe it's just that the epidemiologist part of activist and epidemiologist overwhelms the other. I see his descriptions as hyperbolic. So when he's the source claiming the house is on fire when it comes to monkeypox, I can't quite rush for the exits. And it's true in fields other than COVID, like constitutional law. Take Lawrence Tribe. When he's quoted in a piece I'm reading, I say, now is this Harvard's Lawrence Tribe or is this Twitter's Lawrence Tribe? Because one guy is one of the top constitutional lawyers in America and the other guy's kind of a nut job. I don't like Mitch McConnell either, but I would never from my lofty perch as podcast host tweet anything as personally sneering as Tribe did in commenting on a Mitch McConnell pronouncement about judges. Tribe's tweet, hypocrisy is McTurtle's middle name and his first and last name too. What a flagrant dickhead. Not pulling out one tweet or one statement. Tribe does this all the time. He chases the dopamine hits and the eight more Twitter followers and you got the dunk, you're rewarded. But hundreds of statements like this, one after the other, as a news consumer, make me massively discount Tribe's insight. I can find a lot of insightful constitutional scholars who comport themselves with a lot more dignity. And if I want even a fiery podcast host, I could listen to Leah Lippman, Kate Shaw, and Melissa Murray, who could bring it without having to fling it. And by fling it, I mean the, um, you know, the caca. All of this is contributing to my, and I think also a lot of other people's, epistemic uncertainty. Ten years ago, an article quoting top epidemiologists might not be gospel, but you could take it on faith. Now, I have to go through the mental process of weighing what's quoted against what I know of the quoted parties as the outrage algorithm complex grinds on. On the show today, it's a full show interview with Liz Smith whose new book, Any Given Tuesday, A Political Love Story, drops tomorrow. Liz Smith is in the mold of brazen, insightful, profane, and profound political consultants. Her clients include Pete Buttigieg, Claire McCaskill, and Bill de Blasio. Also, in an advisory capacity, Andrew Cuomo, a relationship which takes up some of the book and a lot of this conversation, which I compliment Liz for. She's not ducking the questions. Smith is generally of the mind that fringes of the Democratic Party often act against the party's self-interest though she's also intimately familiar with politicians gleefully immolating their own careers without anyone else to blame. Liz Smith for the full show up next.
Liz Smith is a political consultant of the Devil May Care pirate ship variety. She also has deeply held convictions. She is one with Claire McCaskill. She headed Obama's 2012 rapid response team. She became best known as the senior communications director for Pete Buttigieg. And she has had different relationships with the New York triumvirate of Elliot Spitzer, Bill de Blasio, and Andrew Cuomo, the three most powerful men in New York politics of this millennium. Maybe you want to put Bloomberg in there. So of those three, she dated one got essentially fired by another and offered advice and now intense condemnation of the third. That would be Cuomo. It's all in the book, Any Given Tuesday, A Political Love Story. Liz, welcome to The Gist. Thank you. Wow, you made it. My story sounds so dramatic. (laughs) What? It's not? I mean, Uh, it's not? Well, it is. It is. But (laughs) hopefully people can take away more than just the drama from it. Right. So at this point in the life of someone who does what you do would not normally be the point that the memoir comes out, the time for reflection. But as I see it and as I see it through your eyes, were you thinking that you needed to maybe set the record straight or address specifically your involvement with uh, Andrew Cuomo? Because you do advise Cuomo. Tell me how you got sucked into that in the beginning. Mm, So I had... I had consulted for uh, Governor Cuomo on his 2018 campaign, um, on both the primary and the general. Not and, it, not exactly a heavy lift, right? Right, it, it, and and right, and I talk about that in the book. Um, but you know, he wanted to make sure that he he you know he he's a guy who likes to win, win by big margins, and so he called me, went to work for him, and you know, as a consultant, you, you you're you're sort of you're not involved really in the day-to-day, right? Like I'm not in the office with him. I was never in Albany except for a couple debate prep sessions. But my interactions with him were, you know, largely positive. And um, I kept in touch with him during Pete's presidential campaign. He would call me to offer me encouragement. Um, I remember once he told me, you've got to take notes, you've got to write a book. And so I had a really positive relationship with him. Right. So let me, uh, let's pause. And I just want to go back about your uh, recollections of your impressions of Cuomo. Politics is a tough business. Many politicians are really uh, bare knuckled. And even the ones in my experience that have the fuzziest reputations absolutely understand where all the votes are, how to get them, what's needed to be done. And they're, you know, not naive about the hard tactics involved. That said, did you think, you know, in 2018 or before of Andrew Cuomo as one or two deviations away from the standard politician in terms of how bare knuckles and how down in the mud he would get? Um, you know, that's a good question. I, I guess I, I guess I would say yes, but that in New York politics, it was almost viewed as a necessity to be that way to wrangle the state government and to be able to, you know, deal with the mayor of New York City. You know, New York is a very, very big state. It is very difficult to govern. You have a very rowdy state legislature. The governor and the mayor have traditionally had, you know, been at loggerheads no matter, you know, what year it is. So New York has a long history of having both mayors and governors who are probably one or two standard deviations away from, you know, your normal politician, right? Right, right. It's It's not like being governor of, it's not like being governor of Ohio or Iowa 
um, it's it's a whole different deal. Right. I mean, John Kasich is now p- popping into my head saying, how dare you? But you're right. The New York <laughs> press corps, the three right. men, the three men in a room situation in the legislature of people outside New York don't understand the long history of dysfunction. Just the setup between uh, the extremely important issue of the subway, which can never be solved because no one has ownership of it. You're absolutely right. And I want to get back to that in a second. But let's talk for a second about the let's talk for a second about the stupid Cuomo sexual thing, which used to mean that people were so enamored by his handling of the pandemic that they were sexually attracted to him. In the book, you write about how ridiculous it was. But if I got you at the time and I, say, and I were to say, give me, you know, give you some sodium pentothal and give me the assessment of how he's really doing in handling COVID and handling the communication around it, what would you have said? He was, there's a reason why he became, you know, a national phenomenon, a global phenomenon. You know, he was given Emmys. People call themselves homosexuals, which is absurd. But he was a perfect antidote to Donald Trump in that moment. And he was giving people everything that they needed in that moment. He was giving them facts, you know, how many hospitalizations there had been that day, how many deaths there had been that day. But he mixed the facts with, you know, with this, with empathy, with emotion. He told stories about his own family. He read letters he received from constituents. And he sort of, you know, it was sort of like a modern day fireside chat. Mm -hmm. At some point, though, I think it started to turn, you know, Mm -hmm. and it's pretty easy to pinpoint because it was when he started to get criticism over uh, his policy on um, returning COVID patients to nursing homes. And what he should have said then was that, um, you know, he was following guidance from the CDC and this is a once in a once in a lifetime pandemic. You're not going to get everything right, um, and that maybe New York didn't get that quite right. But instead of doing that and sort of striking a tone of contrition, he got really defiant. Um, and that's when I say that you know America's governor was turning into America's asshole because it's like he could not deal with the idea that he wasn't this perfect. COVID hero, superhero, that he maybe had made mistakes and that he maybe had to say, hey, I'm sorry, I fucked this up. Um, and if he had done that, I think that would have you know, helped with a lot of his problems down the line. Yeah. So he is uh, first hit with allegations. The first accuser is Lindsay Boyland. Her major allegations are that he asked her to play strip poker and kissed her. Other allegations start emerging. There is a former staffer named Charlotte Bennett where she revealed to him that she was a sexual assault survivor. He plowed ahead and asked her about, you know, would she be bothered by age differences between her and the person she dated? The accrual of these accusers, and they were of a different variety, had an effect on you. But was there a breaking point? Was there a point when you said, okay, it's one accuser, okay, it's two accuser, and now at this point I no longer believe him? Um, I, well, I, I do, I talk about in the book, there was an allegation, um, about him, you know, groping a, uh, a staffer at the executive mansion. And that's when a lot of us were like, you know, what the hell? And, you know, this isn't what we signed up for. This is disgusting. And, But again, you know, he got on the phone with us and vehemently denied it. And you could say, okay, well, why didn't you cut the cord just then? 
Um, but it really was when the AG report came out and all of it was laid out. And he had told us that nothing new would be in there. That hmm. no, he had looked us all in the eye and said nothing new would be in there. And then there was this allegation that he had been inappropriate with the state trooper. And for people who don't, um, you know, aren't enmeshed in politics, governors are, t- are tasked with, you know, uh, detail with police details. They have police details for their protection, um, usually the state troopers. And it was just vile to me that, you know, he would act inappropriately, that inappropriately with someone um, who was tasked with protecting him. And, but that he had lied to us again. And that's when we all just said, you got to go. It's time for you to resign. There was not a single advisor around him at that point that uh, didn't think he needed to resign. And, you know, 10 days later, he did. Well, you say, and I don't think it was at this point, but you tell me that when all the advisors were of one mind, Bill Clinton gave him different advice. Yeah. Yeah. Was it then? Yes. Yeah. So it was the day the, um, the day the AG report came out, uh, he got on a call with us and, you know, another advisor told him it's over. And he asked me what I thought. And everyone, everyone was in agreement that it was over and that he had to resign. Um, and then the next day, you know, as he was still making calls around to find someone who would dissent with us, someone who would say, hey, you don't have to actually resign. He did find one one person, mm-hmm. and, and that person was former President Bill Clinton, who told him, you got to go out there, you got to make your case directly to the people of New York and say that your fate is in their hands and not the politicians. So here we have an executive. He has a team of longtime, very skilled advisors. They're all giving him the same advice. He seeks out advice that tells him what he wants to hear. Does this make Bill Clinton team crazy in this analogy? <laughs> <laughs> you know, I think we're all in, in this. I, I feel like um, we're all team crazy in this, well, I in mean this that analogy, seriously, like, but yes. Why do you think Clinton said that? I can think of a number of things. He was living in the 90s. He did it. Some sort of psychological self-justification. Maybe he also has great political skills. I don't know. Maybe there's a chance he was right. Um, I, I think he was probably projecting some of his own situation. Um uh, onto Andrews. And it's not dissimilar from why I decided to sort of get involved and help him help Andrew through this, because I had been a crisis. I had been in a crisis. I had been a target of of a lot of attacks in the media. And, you know, Bill Clinton- And this was when you were dating Elliot Spitzer yeah. and were on the front page of the Post and right. were accused of uh, being the recipient of some toe sucking. Right, right, which is false, extremely false. And I, um, but I knew the isolation that came with, you know, being in the spotlight that way, the people who leave you, the um, the people who you thought were your friends or colleagues, you know, suddenly just, you know, drop you like a hot potato. And I think Bill Clinton knew that too yeah. and was trying to be a sympathetic voice. Um and, you know, he probably honestly did believe that there was a chance that Andrew could get through it, but there really wasn't. 
Yeah. You in the book, there's a lot of detail about what Chris Cuomo's dynamic was during all this. He could be a dick telling you guys, I know the media, you don't know the media. But he also was, uh, as you describe it, sort of a temperate force to his brother's worst instincts. And you even get into a little bit about how after Mario's death, Andrew sort of uh, retreated into a, a bit of a bubble or got even more hardened. Um, knowing what you know about what his involvement was, do you think that CNN, if it wanted to maintain faith with its audience, needed to punish him in some way? Um, yeah, I, I don't think it's, I don't think it was unreasonable for them to do that. I, I don't. Um, because when he, because even though he's an opinion anchor essentially, but he was giving advice to his, his brother who was a politician. And I, I don't think CNN was in the wrong for, you know, for, for punishing him for that. Mm -hmm. And what, when it was going on, when he was involved in meetings that you were in, were you thinking this to some extent? Like, was it, was one of your, uh, Eyebrows raised a little bit, bit. I can't believe he's going on TV as an anchorman and at the same time being essentially a political consultant, even if it is his brother he loves. Well, no, because he was recused from, well, two things. One, he was recused from covering it. But two, you know, and I write about this in the book, and I think it is a really important thing um, for people to understand is there is a fog of war that comes when you are in the middle of a shitstorm like this, when you're in the middle of a crisis of this magnitude, where all of the local and national press is bearing down on you, when, you know, every other day someone new is coming out of the woodwork and saying he's got to resign, when new allegations are popping up seemingly out of nowhere after you've been told nothing more can come forward, that... You don't have the luxury to step back and and say, you know, why am I doing this? Should, why should I be doing this? Why is Chris doing this? Why are any of us doing this? Is this worth our time? And that's a question I really wish, those are questions that I really wish I had asked myself and that I'm sure others involved would have, uh, would have been, would have loved to have asked themselves. But you did ask yourself, I mean, you were aware and you took steps during that whole time to insulate yourself from some of the most tangible entanglements. Like you didn't take money for your consulting and that was uh, a calculation, right, on your part that you didn't want to be seen as having taken money for your consulting. Well, part of it is, you know, I, I'm a human um, yes. and I'm someone who had been tarred and feathered in the press in the past, you know, because of my relationship with the New York governor. And I wanted to help Andrew, but I also didn't want to get, you know, frankly, some of the same grief that I had had, um, that other people have never had to deal with. And I still deal with, you know, I, what some, some of the, you know, trauma that being in the public spotlight um, uh, caused me. And so a lot of it was about, you know, protecting not just my reputation, but protecting me, my mental health, yeah. because I just didn't want to go through that again. Um, during that time, 
it seemed that you were more aware than the actual supposedly trusted member of the media of how the media actually worked. Well, I, you know, I think you need to take into consideration the fact that the fog of war was times a thousand for him because this was his brother. This right. was someone who had, you know, who had been like a father figure for him growing up. You know, he was, I think, 13 years older. And it, with the Cuomo's, family comes first. And maybe that consumed Chris and that um, undermined some of his media savvy in the moment. Um, but I, I think for him, it was family first, you know, media savvy second. Yeah, in my adult life, I've changed my opinion on loyalty. Um, I used to just think of it as a virtue, but, and you know, when you go back to the Latin root words, fidelis and so forth, it certainly is. But then I remember the George W. Bush administration used to always talk about that loyalty was what he prized the most. And I got to thinking about it, you know, why would someone prize loyalty in a subordinate unless they knew that loyalty was going to be tested? If one were confident, if a leader is confident in his or her ability to earn loyalty, they wouldn't talk so much about the necessity for loyalty, would they? Um, I don't know if you've contemplated the whole idea of loyalty. It seems like you have a little. Well, yeah, I, I look, I think that's a good point. There's also a dynamic um, on campaigns and in, you know, government administrations, like a family dynamic, um, that it can be great, but it can also be unhealthy. And so there's a difference between earned loyalty and blind loyalty. And in my case, I, I sort of conflated loyalty with integrity. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I you know, put my integrity my reputation on the line for someone who didn't deserve it. It's something that everyone needs to figure out where to draw that line and that it it needs to be earned loyalty and not blind loyalty. And that loyalty, as you said, isn't always a virtue. Do you think the AG's report by Tish James, who, by the way, you worked for uh, as an advisor before to to help her gain that position as AG, do you think it was well done and fair? Um, Look, there have been... Uh, there have been some autopsies done about it, uh, done about it, that some of the, that it had left out some key facts, um, that it was clearly written with a predetermined conclusion. Um, and I think, that, look, I think that there, there was, there is some truth to it, but it doesn't take away from the ultimate fact that, uh, that there was clearly a pattern of Andrew Cuomo um, acting inappropriately with people. Mm-hmm. Um, I watched your entire testimony in preparation of this interview, and there were a couple times I thought it was fascinating. First of all, that was the first time you'd ever been uh, deposed or had to raise your hand in a proceeding like that? Yeah, well, uh, first and hopefully last, yes. Yeah, yeah. I got the impression that they were asking you at times unfair questions, like, But in your understanding, is sexual harassment necessarily sexual in nature? Yes or no? And to be clear, it can be yes, no, or I don't know. How do you, how does, how is a person supposed to answer that? 
It seems like they're trying to trick you into agreeing to a tautological definition that they could yank the rug out and say, ha no, it's not. It's not always sexual. It's based on gender. But then, of course, sexual sometimes means gender. So what do you think of that question or any other questions that you might have been frustrated with? Yeah, I mean, I, I was I, I have the same questions you do about them. Um, and I found some of the questions to be incomprehensible. I don't know. And I don't necessarily understand the question. You know, it was a, it was a 10 hour deposition. So I, I haven't gone back and watched it. So your memory of it is probably your recollection of it is probably better than mine. Uh-huh. That's good. You do not recall. No, I know you don't. <laughs> when you were pitching it, this is in the book, but when Pete Buttigieg interviewed you, you were really interviewing him. What did you, what were you looking for in those calls with Buttigieg that convinced you that this could be an interesting guy to work with? Mm, well, this was, I talked with him in December of 2016. It was in that like just crazy, depressing, dark, confusing time after, you know, Donald Trump shocked a lot of people, including myself, by winning the presidency and made Democrats sort of do a lot of soul searching. And I know a lot of people, you know, political operatives like me who um, who left the business um, after that because they were like, you know, fuck this. I, I don't want to be a part of this business if, you know, th this is a world where we can see someone like Donald Trump get elected. And that the only way to beat Trump was to be Trump. And, you know, Eric Holder was going around saying stuff like, um, you know, when they go lo low, we kick them in the head. And, you know, I just remember looking at cable news and just hearing all this yelling and screaming every day and hair on fire to the point that I just couldn't take it anymore. Yeah. And then I got on the phone with Pete and it, and it's just completely different. You know, he is just a completely measured, rational, reasonable guy who knew exactly who he was, knew exactly what he believed. And what he believed wasn't just in reaction to Donald Trump and wasn't centered around Donald Trump. And I thought that that was a voice we really needed in the Democratic Party because he was so reasonable. So of his age, mid-30s, mm. his sexual orientation, gay, his inexperience and just the fact that he was unknown to America, and the fact that his highest position was uh, mayor of the seventh largest city in Indiana, which one of those was the hardest one for you to overcome in terms of, uh, in terms of propelling him to a possible Democratic nomination? Um. I think they're look. They're all sort. They're all sort of interrelated, um, and they all provide. They all presented challenges. Um, and the biggest challenge, I think, what combined, they combined to make the biggest challenge of all for us, which was the number one criteria for Democratic uh, voters was: can this candidate 
beat Donald Trump. They did not want to take a risk on someone. And that is ultimately why, you know, Democratic voters went with Joe Biden. So the fact that Pete was 37 years old and by the end, 38, the fact that he was openly gay, the fact that he was the mayor of a town that was just 100,000 people, you know, all of that did make him a little bit of a riskier candidate. Um, And, uh, a, a candidate that some voters thought, hmm, you know what, we like him, and but maybe maybe next time. And so I, I can't I can't say that one mattered more than the other because I think all three combined to um, hmm. present a, a narrative that maybe he was a little too risky to take a chance on this time. Yeah, I I perceived and he perceived talking to him and reading his memoir. And by the way, I guess the reason I talked to him was because you know you okayed that uh, <laughs> but. Um, that, that his being gay was an asset, at least to Democrats. But what you're saying, because it would even people who, people don't want to see themselves, especially Democrats, but I think almost every American, don't want to see themselves as bigoted and racist. And the fact that they can embrace uh, Buttigieg or even embrace Obama, it's a dyna- it was a uh, measurable dynamic, was an asset. But what you're saying is sort of a double bank shot. The, many Democrats had a perception that others would be um, bigoted against him. Yes. And and that's a funny thing about Democratic primary voters and making their choice, right, is that we found that a lot of them sort of played pundit in their heads. Well, who's going to be the most electable in the general election? You know, our Republicans, our independents, are they going to be open to a gay candidate? Um, Are they going to be open to a 37-year-old candidate? And that's how they thought of it. It wasn't necessarily that they were, you know, they themselves had an issue with um, his sexuality. It's that they thought other people might have an issue with his sexuality. Now, I wanted I wanted to ask you about the Democratic Party in general, Joe Biden in specific. Let's take the second part first. Do you think he should stand for reelection? Yes, I do. There are very few instances in history where um, incumbents don't run for reelection, one. But two, would he rather be at 73 percent than 33 percent in the polls right now? Yes. But there's a long time between now and 2024. And a lot of the chatter right now reminds me of the chatter around Barack Obama in 2010, which I think a lot of people forget about. But uh, in in November 2010, after Democrats got absolutely shellacked, right, during the Tea Party wave, there was all this talk and all these editorials saying, you know, it's Barack Obama should step aside. Maybe Hillary Clinton should be the candidate, um, but that Barack Obama had clearly failed his party and wouldn't be able to win the presidency. And, you know, boy, did he prove all of those people wrong. So I think we need to, as a party, I would like to think a lot less about 2024 and think a lot more about 2022. uh, Because what we're seeing right now is that while Biden's numbers are low, you know, in the 30s, that the generic Democratic ballot has actually ticked up with some of the, you know, recent developments like the Dobbs decision. And, um, you know, I think the mass shootings have had an effect on that. And Mm -hmm. I would personally, as a Democrat, like to hear a lot more talk about what's at stake in 2022, because I think that will have a massive impact on 2024. 
How bad a problem you've advocated going on, you know, Democrats should go on Fox. Pete Buttigieg goes on Fox. I heard you on The Bulwark, which is, you know, a center-right podcast saying this, essentially. How bad, how big a problem for the party, for society, is media, media siloing? Um, I think it's really bad for society because people now can just go and seek out media that just reinforces their worldview. Um, Like my mom only watches MSNBC. There are people who only watch Fox. And so they really only get one perspective and think that that is, that everything else is is wrong, that everyone on the other side is evil um, and that there is no common ground. And that is, that's a a really big problem. Um, And I'm I'm not sure, honestly, how we're going to fix it. Mm-hmm. And Twitter seems to be an accelerant. Oh, to all it, of this it really is. It, Twitter is. It it really is because um, I I think Twitter brings out sometimes social media. Twitter brings out the worst in people because it's a lot easier to say awful things about people if you're not face to face. And we all know this. And it allows politicians to say things that they would never say to other politicians' faces. And um, it's become a much bigger force in politics where staff of campaigns are on Twitter all day and they see, you know, their candidates getting you know, raked over the coals for not being left enough on this issue, yeah. not being, not speaking out fa- quickly enough on this issue. And then they put pressure on, you know, people like me or the candidates and say, what are you doing? You know, we're losing Twitter today. And it's like, fuck Twitter. You know, yeah. you, you're not here to win Twitter. You're here to win elections. You're here to win the hearts and minds of the American people. And, you know, 80% of the American people aren't on Twitter and 95% of the American people don't post anything on Twitter. So don't let Twitter dictate your life. Liz Smith is the author of Any Given Tuesday, a political love story. Um, It's quite a rollicking ride. Thanks so much, Liz. (laughs) Thanks for having me. And that's it for today's show. Corey Wara produces The Gist in an assistant capacity, Joel Patterson. That guy is the senior producer of The Gist. Michelle Pasca, COO of Peachfish Productions, among Spitzer, de Blasio, and Cuomo, will cop to voting for at least one, at least once, but no more than that. Because as we say, it's not about me. It's about we. The Gist is produced in collaboration with Libsyn's AdvertiseCast for advertising inquiries. Go to AdvertiseCast.com slash The Gist. Oomperu, Jeeperu, Duperu, and thanks for listening.